0: Welcome to the 8th episode of the official
1: SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. (laughs) Hello, everybody. Um, We are today in Glasgow, which I'm told I've mispronounced. We're speaking with a man who was brought up near Glasgow, then moved away to Aberdeen at the far end of Scotland for his training, as a medical student, decided that he didn't care for it there, came back to Glasgow, and now is the city's biggest fan. Of course, I'm talking about Andrew Barclay. <laughs> Andrew Barclay is a gastroenterologist in Glasgow, a pediatric gastroenterologist, who has, if I've judged his CV correctly, started out with an interest in parenteral alimentation, and then moved to the... To what strikes me as one of the least tractable problems in parenteral alimentation, to which he gives the name of gastrointestinal dystonia. Andrew or Andy, did I get all that right? And would you pronounce Glasgow for us?
0: Um, it is Glasgow, but uh, it's locally referred to as Glasgow. And I suppose that comes from the original Celtic pronunciation, which was Glasgow, which means Deer Green Place which is uh, what the Vikings thought of it when they turned up.
1: And what about the CV? What about the, the cursus honorum, the, uh, your progress into gastrointestinal dystonia?
0: Yeah, I, thanks for that. I, um, I think you're correct in that my career has pivoted and not necessarily been where I thought I would through uh, clinical nutrition within paediatric gastroenterology. So, I was an, under, an undergraduate in Aberdeen, but then did my general training in paediatrics and in paediatric gastroenterology in Glasgow in Edinburgh and Sydney, and I did my postgraduate degree at the University of uh, Glasgow. Taking an interest in clinical nutrition, the preeminent problem during my training was intestinal failure, secondary to short bowel syndrome. Um, So I had the perspective that I would spend the majority of my time dealing with home parental nutrition and short gut. But in fact, over time, the preeminent problem for those in paediatric nutrition has been the increasing problem of children with severe neurodisability having profound symptoms in response to feeding that has become increasingly difficult. And we're terming that gastrointestinal dystonia this is really a new problem in even the most recent ESPEGAN reviews. If you look at the ESPEGAN 2017 review for uh, feeding in severe neurodisability, it doesn't really talk to children in whom you cannot uh, feed because of symptoms of tone, distress, and pain. And that's really what uh, I've been examining in more detail over the last five years with my team here. I want to underscore the fact that
1: when you begin your medical career, your subspecialty career, you wind up places where you never thought you'd go. I paid no attention whatsoever, for example, in medical school to intermediary metabolism. And then I wound up doing pediatric liver disease where everything is shuttling molecules back and forth. Serves me right, I suppose. So particularly for the young people who are listening, it will fall into place and it will be a success. That's what we can learn from this, uh, from, from Andy's CV. I need to go back to the idea of dystonia. When I was being trained, which of course was back in the Triassic, dystonia was something, aside from globus, aside from vaginismus, aside from anismus, dystonia was something that affected voluntary muscle, voluntary muscle only. When you think about the definition for dystonia that's been mooted, which is that of uh, repetitive, involuntary muscle contractions, well, for me, that's peristalsis. I don't want to have to think about how my food makes its way from one end of my tract to the other. We're now talking about a different sort of dystonia, aren't we?
0: Well. That's a very good point and one that uh, we have had long discussion with my colleagues. So currently I'm in the middle of trying to put an expert consensus statement together to give the definition as well as treatment plans. And we've we've gathered experts from several different fields. So pediatric gastroenterology, pediatric surgery, neurology, uh, palliative care. And I suppose there was a lot of discussion about whether we should be using the term dystonia. I I think I have used it because the the first paper that really describes this well, which was from the Sheffield group, which is uh, Santosh Mokadon and David Campbell, who are on our uh, RAND group, they they gave the term feed-induced dystonias. And they were describing children who had muscular hypertonicity, so hypertonicity of the voluntary muscles in response to feeding. And they were describing patients who were so disabled by this that they would enter into status dysconicus, even if you switched the feed off. And they really described their use of parental nutrition as a treatment strategy. And what they found was that if you could uh, manage the patients over a crisis and improve their overall nutritional status, you could pivot the majority of them back to enteral feeding. Um, I'm trying to keep the term away from pathophysiology. Because I think we don't, it's poorly understood. Um, it is probably multivariate depending on the neurological uh, deficit that the child has. Um, and I think I'm trying to look at clino- clinical phenotype. And, I, and for some of these patients, there will be a motor problem of the bowel, and that may be small bowel spasm uh, or <clears throat> the migrating motor complex moving in the wrong direction. So there is an element of muscle contraction abnormality. And that's where I think gastrointestinal dystonia is is a good term. We've talked about whether we should call it gastrointestinal induced dystonia. And I think the best way to think of it is gastrointestinal dystonia of severe neurodisability. And dystonic crisis and severe hypertonicity is not the only features that we see. Um, We also see uh, abnormalities of the vasomotor system, flushing, tachycardia, bradycardia, sweating, hypersalivation and pain and distress behaviours. I think the thing that is most, if you're trying to describe it in a single sentence so that a clinician recognises they've seen a child with this problem, this child will be malnourished not because they've been vomiting or because of diarrhoea but because they've had to have their feed switched off. Uh, on multiple occasions as the only strategy that the caregiver can find to stop the symptoms.
1: These are mostly tube fed children then?
0: Yeah, I think by definition, these are children on the severe end of the spectrum. So they would be what we call GMFCS four or five or equivalent. So GMFCS is a cerebral palsy definition but it's useful in that other more specific neuro-metabolic conditions that are affected by it can be equated on that scale. These children are almost all completely non-ambulant and non-verbal children who have been dependent on tube feeding.
1: Um, You might want to grab hold of something because I'm going to try to drag you back to pathophysiology. (laughs) And that is... When I start to think about the dystonias, there are primary dystonias, as I understand it, which have a genetic component, and there are secondary dystonias, which arise in origin with, in particular, damage to motor control elements and the basal ganglia, for example, Wilson disease. What we're dealing with in these children, then, is a complex secondary dystonia in that many of them on imaging study or on clinical assessment seem to have basal ganglia damage?
0: So I suppose, again, I pivot away from using pathophysiology because I think that clinical phenotype to describe what's happening is more useful because I think it's multivariate uh, and what we are dealing with is is symptoms. I think that given the degree of disability, not all of these children will benefit from really invasive investigations, such as manometry of the bowel, and therefore thinking of it in a clinical phenotype is easier. What I would say is that I think we do see a bimodal distribution of these of this phenotype. So I think that there is a, a, an earlier onset phenotype in the first year or second year of life, um, with severe symptoms. And I think those are more likely to have a neurometabolic or complex diagnosis. And mm-hmm. I think those will be more likely to approach a primary phenomenon. Mm-hmm. The other children I see it in are older children with cerebral palsy, children who've had a successful feeding intervention earlier on in their life in the first two to three years, possibly have required some type of anti-surgery such as fundoplication. And as they get into the second decade of their life, they start to uh, demonstrate the same phenomena. And I think those would be far more of a secondary phenomenon. I think.
1: This is for me immensely helpful in understanding exactly what we're talking about, because as you said, we're working at the gray areas, at the edge of the map. Things aren't being de- things are being defined, and the edges are blurred. So yes, in that instance, I'm going to switch metaphors now. Again, hold on to your hat. This is an instance in which you want to trawl with a very fine meshed net as widely as possible in order to pick up anything that fits that phenotype, anything that's a fish. And once you get it on deck, then you can decide which are the real instances in which you're particularly interested, what subcategories there are, and what patients seem to be bycatch. Again, trying to draw on Scotland's fishing history.
0: Well, what can be done for these kids? Well, I think this is this is emerging and I think the difficulty the question of whether these patients would benefit from long-term parental nutrition is a difficult one both in terms of resource and then a uh, balance for uh, children in terms of quality of life so I suppose much of my work has been focusing earlier on in the decision tree and earlier on in the treatments so I suppose our understanding of surgical interventions and their benefits in children in cerebral palsy has um, changed over the last decade. So my my centre, Glasgow, was a pioneer centre for laparoscopic fundoplication, and certainly my surgeons are extremely um, adept at doing laparoscopic fundoplication. This is this is an operation that can have benefits, but for these children at the severe end of the spectrum this is this is possibly an operation that will set will swap one set of symptoms for another and i think that fund application in a child who's at risk of these symptoms can likely be the the mechanism by which they start having uh, dystonia so i think good decision making around early surgical interventions is important and we changed the makeup of our clinic uh, about seven years ago. So any of these children that have such complex uh, disease, the surgeons won't be making a decision on whether to proceed to um, fund application uh, in isolation. It will be done in a multidisciplinary setting with the gastroenterologist, dietitian, and the specialist nurse. Um, I think that we can look for lower tech solutions. So I think our understanding of the pathophysiology and gastric emptying is still poor. Many of these children do have poor gastric emptying. Many of them, it may be more a sensory component where their stomach does empty well to milk, but they have severe distress uh, with the presence of milk. Previously, we'd been uh, bypassing this with post-pyloric feeding, but actually very surprisingly, a lower-tech intervention, specifically blenderized diet, being administered via the um, gastrostomy, has been very successful in improving gastric emptying and reducing symptoms for patients. So I think seeing patients in an MDT setting with dietetic input to see whether someone be appropriate for a blend-rise diet may well reduce these symptoms. I think there are other medications um, that we can provide that may assist with symptom management before going to post-pyloric feeding. Let me try to recap that,
1: if I may. You mentioned that there is a biphasic distribution in age of these patients, with some perhaps having a primary problem, and others who have been fed successfully or adequately for some while, then developing gastrointestinal dystonia. I wanted to ask you before you began that explication, what's the trigger? what do the kids have in common, if anything, whose response to enteral feeding worsens as they age? And you've given me one hint now, which is surgical intervention that alters the dynamics of what goes into the stomach and where it can go once it's got there, that is, fundoplication, may have an adverse effect in a subset of patients. Have you found any markers for the ones who just won't
0: do well? So um, I suppose that severity of their motor function would be one. We perform a nuclear medicine gastric emptying study uh, as part of our pre-clinic assessment. So I think if you have defined delayed gastric emptying then that would be a risk factor for uh, fund application, and we would delay fund application, although we, we have, where we felt it's mandatory, usually for airway protection, performed fund application in patients with delayed gastric emptying. I think if they have lower GI dysfunction, that's usually a marker as well. So often the, often the patient will be presented as having constipation and will be in a lot of laxatives. Whether that is constipation or whether that's a lower gut elimination problem, um, it's it's, um, something that we've talked at length in the group as well, because I think it's it's often a problem of colonic function or colonic motility as well, but due to the, the feedback mechanisms, that may manifest itself as feed intolerance rather than constipation symptoms. I think those are the main ones that give us concern that this person may be potential for developing GI dystonia it may herald dysfunction in other areas. So, one of the precipitants for uh, arriving in our clinic might be that they've had a deterioration in their respiratory function, and it may be that their respiratory function being deficit may that may affect the gastrointestinal tract, or if there's a global decline in their motor function, again that may uh, that may also make GI dystonia worse. So I think being mindful of whether this is an isolated problem to do with the gastrointestinal tract or whether this is a global deterioration in a child who has a progressive disorder, I think is something to be uh, cogent of when thinking about what your interventions are going to be. Well, there is
1: the surgeon in the corner and she's got her knife out and she's pacing. (laughs) And you're saying, not quite yet, not quite yet. We have some arrows in our quiver that we haven't fired you mentioned blended feeding.
0: What about drugs? So I think the, the understanding of the drugs are limited. And as part of this, when I recognize this is a new problem, we, we performed a systematic review, which we presented at the SBGAN meeting in 2018. The difficulty being that if the term lacks a definition, how do you define the papers? But we, we used the working definition we had and said, did the population in these studies match And there was very little evidence at that time. There was really uh, several for surgical intervention. So there were several that uh, described jejunal feeding in these patients or um, fundoplication. But the only medical interventions at that time that really fitted this patient population definition were both about parental nutrition. Uh So the evidence base was poor, And we've sought to improve that evidence base. So we've done that ourselves with uh, Nabilone or THC. So when speaking to my nutrition colleagues in in the UK about this problem and recognising this problem, many people said, oh, we've used this medicine, we've used that medicine, I, I hear Nabilone could be used. And I was interested in that. But when I drilled into the question, have you actually used it? No one had. So we, huh. looked, we looked at the existing studies for Nabilone, which are in uh, pediatric chemotherapy, and we looked at the relative costs and the side effects of Nabilone, and it felt like in comparison to some of the other very sedative medications we use, a reasonable medication to try. So I, we applied f- through the clinical director for compassionate use. Um, we wanted to be very clear as to why we were using it and... Uh, what the benefits were. So I used all of the MDT, um, I used all of the MDT group, including the neuro prescribers, uh, the surgeon, the specialist nurse before we made the decision to use it. Um, we put patients on and we um, we monitored them for a month and then six months. And I suppose one of the things that's often lacking in nutritional interventions is uh, the ability to assess things properly so we used the peds ql Q- Q- um, assessment tool to look at specifically gi symptoms and we found that although it was a small group all of the patients who stayed on the nabilone had significant benefit
1: all right well thank you um nabilone so you we have a pharmacologic intervention that can be attempted we have alterations in the enteral diet itself, and we have parental alimentation as a way to carry a child through a bad patch during which enteral nutrition is not tolerated. That sounds as if there's some hope. Now, as I mentioned before, you're at the cliché here, cutting edge, Are your proposals and are your approaches finding resonance, finding acceptance among other pediatric gastroenterologists who manage similar children?
0: Yeah, I think um, I presented our nabilone findings uh, at the UK meetings on a couple of occasions and I've been contacted by many, many of the nutrition centers for that. I think that blenderized diet was not, although it's been around a long time, it's not been generally accepted in the dietetic community. Um, it's quite resource intensive for a dietitian to give good consistent advice about blenderized rice diet um, and that has made it a barrier to utilizing it within the NHS setting. But I think as more information has become available, I think many more units are um moving towards that. In particular, the British Dietetic Association changed its statement um, on Blend rise Diet in 2020, and that's, uh, you know, they've changed their stance to say that we should be supporting families with it. So I think both BD and novel Pharmacology has um, got some purchase. I think since we did that uh, study in 2018, there is other published literature I think there's interesting work from Dublin from Billy Burke's group use, on the use of gabapentin. There's a, a publications uh, looking at the use of baclofen as a tone medication and actually whether intrathecal, switching to intrathecal baclofen might reduce GI symptoms. I think one of the things that the difficulty with this is that you need not just to work with your colleagues in paediatric gastroenterology, I think for truly effective prescribing, you need to be working in concert with the neuro medication prescriber as well, in that the tone medications may affect the gut and vice versa. And therefore, although GI people and neurologists have been trained to think of these things as separate spheres, gut dysfunction and muscle tone, I think you probably need to think of them as overlapping concentric circles to really try and effectively treat this condition.
1: I haven't mentioned one very important star in this constellation. Parents, caregivers, families. How are they responding to your work on their children's behalf?
0: I think this is a very resource-intensive area, and I think that you will be meeting for the first time a parent who is essentially a professional carer Um, They will be providing many elements of care for their child, and they are an expert in their child. You may be an expert in uh, pathophysiology or medications, Mm -hmm. but they know their child very well. Um, Feeding and nutrition is not just a scientific subject, it's an emotive subject. The cultural importance of being able to feed is very important. I think the positives of that are These families are hugely motivated and therefore asking them to take on a labour-intensive task such as blenderised diet is something many of them will be able to do. And I think that as well as the physiological benefits of giving real food to their child, the cultural benefits of that are vast. So I think these are excellent families to work with for blenderised diet. I think prescribing medications and trying to be objective about their effectiveness can be more difficult. And I think the most difficult areas, this GI dystonia may herald an overall decline in their child and there may be limitations to what you can achieve for their child and limitations to the interventions. And that's where discord most often occurs. Um, I can't always say that we get it right in terms of how we pivot to have those discussions. Um, But I think that if we are able to give a positive clinical diagnosis in the future, it may mean that we can help introduce subjects such as supportive care in alliance to um, all the um, all the interventions that we are going to try. Um, I'm continually learning about how to try and get this right. Um, and I'm continually learning from patients and families.
1: Well, you're not just learning, you're teaching. And today you've taught me a great deal. And I thank you for that. You've brought me along in an understanding of a a very complex subject, at least from my standpoint, and I'm grateful. Now I wanted to comment before we say thank you and goodbye on what it's like to hear your particular version of English, that Scots accent. I was in Glasgow in 2017 at that conference, uh, presented along with some Chinese colleagues some data on a new uh, form of pediatric liver disease. And I thought about the move that I had just undertaken to Hungary. One of the reasons that I moved to Hungary was that in retirement, I wanted the challenge of a new language and a new culture. And after that visit to Glasgow, I said, I didn't have to go to Hungary. I could have come here for a new language and a new culture. And uh, it's been nice to have exposure, even if for only 20 minutes, to that culture again. Speaking of culture, we generally close these things off with a request that the interviewee name for us a song of his or her own culture, and tell us um, why it's important to her or him. What have you got for
0: us? Okay, so you may have to search for this as a Glasgow group. So I'd like you to find the track Ceiling Granny by Mogwai. This is from their most recent album. They are a pioneering prog not rock instrumentalist group from Glasgow that were young, around about the same time I was young. So they're not that young anymore, but they're still going. And I like this song because essentially it is a prog rock uh, piece of music, but it sounds very Scottish. So I thought that that would be important for this. Um, it uses a device of syncopation called the Scottish snap which is something that you would see in Scottish folk music and not in rock music. Uh, it, it uses it repeatedly. It's a device that's very easily, you could take Ode to Joy and if you put Scottish snaps in it, it, it would. you could make it sound Scottish. So I think uh, that's the musical secret
1: To listen to this song in full length please check out our espigan playlist uh, well thank you sir i enjoyed that song i don't know that i'm going to get around to trying it on ode to joy but um thank you again for allowing us to interview you and thank you for making this one of the more interesting interviews that i've conducted
0: hey, thank you very much and I hope to see anyone listening in Glasgow at some point in the future. As we like to say in Glasgow, come on in. You're very welcome.